Hello, um, I'm Pei Yong and I work in the Clinical Trial Support Group in Mahidol Oxford Research Unit in Bangkok, Thailand. This talk is about protocol development and why it's important to have a good protocol before starting a clinical study. Compliance with good clinical practice, as you know, starts with a GCP-compliant protocol. And according to GCP, the protocol is the document that describes everything about a clinical study. It describes the objectives, design, methodology, and everything about a clinical trial, including the organization of a clinical trial. When one starts a clinical study, usually one starts with the initial concept. And with that, you have ethical and scientific considerations um, about a study that you're about to um, plan. And then you would identify a sponsor, the sponsor being the organization um, taking legal and management responsibility for a clinical trial. You would also think about funding, who will, who will fund the clinical study, because it's a really an important consideration. Um, you would also think about the supply of, of, of the study drugs if you're using an investigational product, especially if it's an unlicensed product, where would you get it? You may, may have to approach the drug manufacturer. Um, you should also think about who will ensure and indemnify the clinical study. And if um, you have a sponsor sponsoring your clinical study, the insurance and indemnity usually is arranged by the study sponsor. And in most cases, it's your employer or the organ organization you belong to. In, in the planning stage of the study, you should also consider the resources and logistics of running a study. This slide shows the GCP requirements of a protocol. As you can see, it covers quite a lot of aspects of a clinical study, starting from the general information to the specifics of um, the specific procedures of the clinical studies. I will go through them um, in the next um, few slides of, the, of this presentation. Um, you should always start with the summary of the study or the concept conceptual um, design of the study. So that would include the title, the study design, study participants, eligibility, sample size, what sort of follow-up duration are you looking for, objectives and endpoints, um, what are investigational products that you'll be using or, or in any specific experimental uh, interventions. Now let's start with the general information page of the protocol. Um, this is an example of a study that is a double-blind double randomized controlled study. Of a, it's a two-arm study, and the example given here is a new drug for asthma. So the study, uh, the study title page would have the title, the reference numbers. Um, you should always have a version number and a date. Who is the principal investigator? Who are the key collaborators? You do not need to list all the investigators on, the, on this page but it is good to list the key collaborators and those involved in the study design, protocol development, for instance. Who's the sponsor? Who's the funder? And it's good practice to sign on this document because it is a statement that it has been approved by the various uh, the signatories here. The first bit of the protocol, after the uh, essential general information, would be the background information. Now, why, why are you doing the study in the first place? Why is it important? Why is it important to the patients or the com and the community? Um, have you considered the safety considerations? What are the risk-benefit ratio? Um, what about previous research? Has, has other people done the research before? What are the results? 
And what's the study population you're looking at? Children, adults, people with disease A, disease B, or is it both? You need to write that in your background information. The key is to justify why the study is being undertaken. And how will the, re the research question you have in mind be answered by the study design that you're proposing? And most of all, or last of all, why is, this, is the study scientific and ethical? Should you go ahead? So the background information should justify the rationale for conducting the study. The next important bit is the objectives and endpoints of conducting the study. The primary objective is the primary research question. Why are we conducting st the study in the first place? So, for example, to demonstrate that drug A is as effective as drug B in reducing blood pressure in uh, patients with, um, between ages so-and-so, for example. Or is it a, if it's an asthma drug, is drug A as effective as drug B in reduce in um, improving moderate asthma, for example? So you need a primary objective, and you may have secondary objectives, and they could be safety, um, safety and uh, considerations of the new drug that you're studying. And next come the endpoints. The endpoints should reflect the objectives. What um, what's important here is that endpoints should be measurable. They should be clinically relevant and they should be parameters that are accepted in the scientific community. So for a blood pressure study, hypertension study, you measure blood pressure, but you have to be more specific than that. Um, blood pressure after six months of drug administration or after one year of drug administration. And it's a, in an asthma study, you probably want to say um, does it reduce the peak flow or does it reduce the number of symptom-free days? All these uh, things should be considered upfront, and then you have to define how they will be measured. What about eligibility criteria? So who are the patients you'll be recruiting for the study? First and impo uh, most important consideration is that the cohort of the group of patients you will you will recruit should be safe, as in are the drugs or interventions safe for this group of patients? Next, they should are they reflecting? Is your target um, group reflected in your study population? And to do that, refer to the available available drug information, and that should be in the manufacturer's investigator's brochure, is or if it's a licensed product, it's in the summary of product characteristics or uh, information leaflet. Um, you should also look at published studies to see if there are any adverse events or any safety considerations that you look into. Maybe you shouldn't recruit patients with liver failure or renal failure. So all this information should be available in the drug information. You should also consider feasibility of recruitment. If you are thinking of a one-year study, then you should um, think that think of how the eligibility criteria will impact on your the duration of your entire study, and if not, you may need to make adjustments. If the eligibility criteria is not suitable, think about how you can adjust it, or perhaps you should extend the study duration. So, what are the ages that you are looking for? Gender, and some of the things that you may want to look at is. If you're conducting a huge multi-center study, um, make the eligibility criteria specific um, 
rather than based on medical judgments. So for a blood pressure study, you may set an upper or lower limit for the blood pressure. Next, we look at study procedures. And these are the important things to consider when um, to include in the protocol. Obviously, the, you have to include a section on the informed consent, screening and eligibility, baseline measurements, randomizations, if applicable, or any study drug inter interventions uh, or administrations, and what are the subsequent assessments that you will need to make. So give specific details of each assessment. How should they be done? If you're measuring blood pressure, what type of measurements should you should you take three times and then take the average or just once? These type of um, decisions should be made in advance with the protocol development team and should be standardized throughout the study, throughout the sites as well. This is an example of a study flowchart. It's always good to draw a flowchart because it helps explain the study um, in, a, um, in a table format. So, for example, in this study of a randomized uh, two-arm study, you have the baseline and screening measurements, um, and then, oh sorry, before that you have informed consent, and that happens in visit one or, or month zero. And then you, ha you have the randomization to intervention A or intervention B, and it's also good to make, um, it's also good to specify what's the maximum time. Because in some studies, you can have the baseline measurement and the randomization at, on different days. In some studies, you can't. For example, if it's a cholesterol-lowering drug, you, it may be that the patients have one week to consider and can come back to the clinic and be randomized. But this may not be applicable or, or, or possible in, a, in another study. So after randomization, what would you like the patient to do? Um, do they come back? Um, every month, every three months, it, that should be written in the protocol. So when they come back, is this a clinic visit? Well, if it's a clinic visit, um, you should describe it in the protocol. Or is it merely a phone follow-up? Or is it a home visit? And you should also specify what the window period is. So let's say if it goes by month, month three, month six, month nine, month twelve, it could be that the window period is plus minus one week and then it's considered a missed visit. So it depends on the study design. You need to explain this in the protocol. The informed consent procedure is one of the first procedures that should be undertaken in any clinical study. Describe in detail how informed consent procedure should be done. And this should be specific to the study. There are generic informed consent consent procedures that comply with the GCP and other ethical considerations, but there are also informed consent procedures that are specific to the study. So describe this in the protocol. Who, who will take informed consent? How and when it will be taken? Remember that some procedures in the clinical study are part of routine care, and you may want to say that um, after the screening procedure, after the, the all the routine care procedures, then you start taking the consent before starting study-specific procedures. This is study-specific and should be mentioned in the protocol to avoid confusion, especially when there are multiple sites and, and the study is ongoing in multi-countries. In, in, in multi so what, what about 
if there are special groups involved, vulnerable groups, children or pregnant mothers. So there are special ethical considerations, and especially in the informed consent procedure, and this should be explained well in, in your protocol. But do remember that the consent should be taken prior to any study-related procedures. So they can, they can be taken after a routine procedure, but not, before, but not after any um, study-specific procedures. Next, we go to screening and eligibility assessments. So there's the usual demographic and social history, and this could also be part of routine care, and some questions could be study-specific. What are the medical um, history information that you need, medical, and including medication history, physical exam, laboratory tests? You should explain this in, in the protocol clearly. And what are the baseline measurements that that you want to take. So in a cholesterol-lowering study, the baseline cholesterol level is very important and you may want to uh, specify that. Sometimes the baseline measurement is part of the screening, um, screening assessment, so if, if, if it's so, you do not need to repeat it, but some, for, um, they, they are not part of the screening procedure. Perhaps you would like to um, administer a questionnaire or quality of life questionnaire. They are not part of the screening procedure, but they are important as a baseline measurement. Most importantly, the baseline must reflect your endpoints and must be able to answer the objectives of the study. What about subsequent assessments? The subsequ subsequent assessments should reflect your study endpoints, and we have talked about it. Endpoints should be measure measurable, and if possible, describe it in great detail so that there's no mistake made when you're running the study. What about compliance to medications? Explain how compliance would be measured, because compliance is it could be an endpoint, and it's very important. How will you collect adverse events? We will talk about adverse events later, but it's important to explain how you would like to collect adverse events. Is it solicited or unsolicited? That's really important to standardize also. What about concomitant medications? Do you, would you like, would, are you going to collect information on concomitant medications? Um, and every, every follow-up, it's good practice to confirm the eligibility of the participant. So perhaps you're recruiting non-pregnant patients and if a pregnant Patients become pregnant, they may, be, may have to be excluded from the study or discontinued from the study. So you need to check and confirm eligibility as well. You should also define what you consider premature con con discontinuation from the study. When is the patient no longer eligible to participate in the study? Perhaps the patient has withdrawn consent or no longer eligible. For example, the case um, of a woman being uh, pregnant after, uh, after being enrolled in the study. What about significant deviations? These are deviations from the protocol. So if the, pro if the drug is to be taken once a day, perhaps the patient has taken it twice a day, do you consider this a significant deviation that warrants um, discontinuation from the study? This is study-specific. It may not be acceptable for some studies, but may be acceptable for other studies. What do you do when a patient misses a visit? In most studies, a missed visit 
it's not a significant deviation and the patient still continues to participate in the study. In some, some cases, it may not be acceptable. The point is, men describe this in detail. What will you do if this happens? What about if the patient experiences an adverse event that uh, is so severe that um, you can, the patient no longer is able to participate in the study? So what happens then? And this should be explained as well. So once you explain and define what constitutes premature discontinuation and what, um, what's the criteria for prim premature discontinuation, also describe what happens to the patient or the study subject. Does, he, does the patient continue to be followed up or do you stop seeing the patient? So this has to be explained as well. Now there's a difference between withdrawal from the study and withdrawal from the study drug or study intervention. So you may have withdrawn the study intervention because of an adverse event, for example, but the patient is still kept in the study and followed up to the end of the follow-up period. And all this is study-specific. Do define it in the protocol. Next is the section on study drugs or intervention. Describe in great detail how the intervention will be, will be um, administered. If it's a study drug, describe the dose, route, do you give it with or without food? Um, what happens if the patient vomits after taking the drug? Do you redose and you know, how many hours after the vomiting that, that you, do, you have to, to redose the subject? So all these important considerations should be written down in the protocol. These are really, really important. What about storage and accountability of study drugs um, and permitted concomitant medication? This should be described in detail in the protocol. This is a very important section, is the safety assessments. Um, do refer to the safety reporting module of, um, to, to get further details, but what the point here is assessment of safety is a very, very important thing to consider when developing the protocol. There are general assessments, for example, physical examination and routine laboratory tests that you should be doing in a clinical study, or perhaps doing routine care as well. So the general assessments should be described, and how will you deal with them? When do you consider them a, a safety consideration? That should be explained. There should be also study specific specific safety parameters that you would consider. And this should be um, written in available drug information. If you look at the study um, product information, for example, they could say, if you administer this drug, do look out for abnormalities in the renal function test, for example. So perhaps every month you would want to check a certain laboratory parameter to make sure your patients are still safe to be enrolled in the study. Describe what test, how, and when you will do it. You need to also define what you consider adverse events. Um, and there's a list of uh, definitions that you have to, to think about. Adverse events, adverse reactions, serious adverse events, serious adverse reactions, and serious unexpected adverse drug reactions. This will be... This has been described in great detail in the safety reporting module. So this graph just shows that 
um, this illustrates the definition. So all adverse events, um, they, the definition is anything untoward that happens to a patient administered a, an investigational product is an adverse event. And then in the middle, in the orange um, circle there, are serious adverse events. Now, these definitions are really important, but for, this, for the purpose of the study protocol, I will explain in the next few slides. So this is the definition that I just explained. Any untoward medical occurrence in a patient or a subject administered a medicinal, medicinal product, which does, and this could be in, in other interventions as well. And it doesn't have to have a causal relationship to the study treatment. But in the protocol, so this is the generic definition, GCP definition, but in the protocol, you need to define what will you do if an adverse event occurs. Do all non-serious adverse events need to be collected or only those thought to be related to the study drug? That means that, that, means that any cough and colds and aches and pains, will you be recording everything? This may not be necessary for a registered product, a well-known product that has been used for centuries, for example. But if it's a new product, you may want to collect everything, cough and colds. You know, then, then you want to define and analyse it later after the study to see whether the drug has actually caused more, more incidences of the cough, for example. And this has happened in the past. People religiously collecting all untoward occurrences has managed to change, change the, the product information of a certain drug. So this has to be decided upon and written in the protocol. Um, it's also important to define if you'd like to, if you like the investigator looking at the patient to, to make the medical judgment of, of whether this occurrence is an adverse event or, or would you like to define it. For example, if it's an abnormal lab result, um, is it automatically considered an adverse event? Or is it up to the medical judgment of the recruiting or the, C, the um, investigator in charge? If the, the drug or the intervention will cause something that you know it's going to happen, for example, renal abnormalities, you, would want to, you may want to say any abnormal renal function test, consider it an adverse event. In other studies, you may say an abnormal laboratory test that is clinically significant based on the investigator's judgment will be considered as an adverse event. Others will not be. So that those decisions are really important and should be defined in the protocol. This is a really important slide. This is, these are called serious adverse events. Remember that adverse events are anything untoward that happens in a patient administered an investigational product. For serious adverse events, the definition is any adverse event that results in the following five conditions. Death or is life-threatening, requires hospitalization or prolongation of existing hospitalization, or it results in significant disability or incapacity, or causes a congenital abnormality of a defect. Now these are the standard definitions of serious adverse events, but you may want to define serious adverse events. 
that you think are serious but not covered here. So if it's a uh, drug causing neutropenia and you know about it, you may want to consider it as a serious adverse event. Um, because this has got reporting uh, considerations and which I will explain later. So if you remember this slide, serious adverse events are a subset of adverse events. AEs are usually captured on AECRFs and reported as part of the final study report at the end of the study. In the protocol, you should explain how they will be reported, usually on the CRF, AECRF, and how often they should be submitted to a safety committee, for example, for review, or not at all, or maybe after the completion of the study. It depends on the risk of the study, the risk of the drug, the newness of, of the drug in question. For serious adverse events, as I said, mentioned earlier, um, according to GCP, they should be reported immediately to the sponsor, except for those SAEs that the protocol or other documents identifies as not needing immediate reporting. So this is the GCP requirement. Now from this statement, we should define in the protocol what does it what this immediately means. It usually means within 24 hours. But you should define it. It could be within one working day. So define that in the protocol. Um, what about the sponsor? As mentioned earlier in the talk, the sponsor is the organization taking responsibility for the management of the, of the study. So the sponsor is an organization. In the protocol, you should define who is the sponsor designee who receive and review the SAEs. And the sponsor designee is usually a committee, a safety committee, or a data and monitoring safety committee that reviews the serious adverse events and made up of uh, experts within the field. So that should be defined. Also define SAEs that require immediate reporting and SAEs that do not require immediate reporting. It's important to, to do this. For example, I'll give you a very good example here. For example, in an oncology study, patients go in and out of the hospital all the time for, for treatment. So in this sort of setting, you would want to say that hospitalizations due to um, procedures that are part of the oncology care do not come under, um, are not defined as SAEs requiring immediate reporting. So that would save you a lot of work. And it's not that it saves a lot of work, it also doesn't bury the important serious adverse events that are really important for the safety of the participants. So that should be defined in the protocol. We talked a little bit about serious, unexpected, serious adverse reactions just now. Um, in, according to GCP, these are usually reported to the ethics committee and the regulatory, regulatory authorities. So it's important to check at this point what are the local requirements and the sponsor requirements. So these are the most important category of any adverse events and they should be reported immediately to everybody that's involved in the study because the next patient recruited could be impacted. The next important section of a protocol is the statistical considerations. Now, what has statistics got to do with GCP? Well, it has a lot to do with GCP. If you look back at the 
objectives and endpoints, and then you need to see how your endpoints will answer your research questions. So the statistical part of it explains how the analysis will take, will, will take place. So to define what statistical methods you will use in the protocol avoids unethical and biased reporting. And it should answer the research question and explain how the endpoints will be analysed. Statistics is also important to define how big the sample size is required for the study and whether an interim analysis is required. So all these decisions have to be made and written in the protocol in great detail. Do get a statistic statistician to help you in writing the statistics part of the protocol because it can be quite challenging. GCP defines source documents as the documents that capture the original recording of any data and that could be hospital records, lab reports, subject diaries and pharmacy records. Those things that those uh, printouts from automated instruments such as uh, the ECG, um, x-rays could be source documents. CRFs or case report forms which are documents designed specifically to capture information for clinical trials may, can be considered CRFs, CRFs as well. So in the protocol you need to define that. What pages of your data collection forms are considered source documents. So the next sec big section is quality control and quality assurance. So you've got you've defined all the procedures, you've defined how they'll be collected, and what you will you do when you will collect them and who will collect them. So the next section is how do you ensure that these are con collected in and the quality is, is, is credible. So you need to describe quality control procedures, quality efforts, describe compliance um, with relevant guidelines, describe what monitoring efforts will be conducted, what are the trial oversight committees that you will establish to monitor the progress of the study, will you conduct central monitoring or site monitoring, will there be any audits. This lends credibility to the data that you'll be collecting. You need also to describe data handling and record keeping. What are the, how, how will you record data? What are the case report forms that you will be using? Is your database um, fit for purpose? Does it provide an audit trail? So this has to be described carefully and, prop and, and in detail in the protocol. You need to also describe ethical considerations. They, the ethics of conducting clinical trials there's a huge debate about the ethical procedure, the ethical considerations of procedures. But in your specific study, describe what you've considered. What approvals have you got? Ethics approvals, regulatory approvals. Um, maybe you've talked to the community advisory board. Any community community engagement strategies? Describe how you've considered the ethics of informing informed consent of obtaining informed consent, sorry, um, especially if you're inc including vulnerable populations, how will you deal with the ethics of including children or refugees if they're part of your study population? How will you address confidentiality issues? Will you use anonymized CRFs? This has to be described in the protocol.
a compliance statement is usually necessary. Describe which regulations or the guidelines you're complying with. And describe any study-specific ethical concerns. Demonstrate in the protocol that you've considered all these things. Well, as you can see, a lot of work and a lot of effort has to be put into the protocol because the protocol is one of the major documents of a clinical study. It is the tool, the most important tool and guide to your clinical trial from the beginning up to the end of the study. And from the protocol, you will need to degenerate a lot of other uh, documents, for example, the information sheet, the consent form, any uh, case report forms, any any submission forms because you would need to submit your protocol and documents to the ethics committee for example and regulatory authorities. There are also documents like SOPs and, and manuals of instructions because the protocol although it's, it's de detailed, it's not detailed enough. Sometimes you need additional documents to describe a certain laboratory procedure because um, the lab for an an analysis of a certain laboratory parameter, you need specific procedures and they do not need to go into the protocol. So you may have specific lab procedures and this has to be generated before you conduct a clinical study. You would also need to make sure that when you generate these documents, they are consistent with the protocol. The information in these documents should be consistent with your, your protocol. should have the same titles, the procedures you describe should be similar. So, in summary, a well-written protocol will help ensure that your study is well-run, whether it's a single-site study or a multiple-site study, well, especially in a multiple-site study because you need to standardise all the procedures. It will help ensure that your study is comply in compliance with GCP and other relevant regulatory guidelines or local considerations. Your data is credible and verifiable and your subjects are protected. They're well taken care of. Thank you.